from VinePair's New York City headquarters. I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. Friday edition. <laughs> this is the fun podcast. Yeah, I'm so glad. <laughs> That's rude. But the more I mean, fun. I'm just saying. It's Friday. Fun times. No, he's yeah. excited about this one because he's the one who does the interview. So whatever. No. Anyways. Oh, Today we're we're gonna we're gonna chat a little bit about Zach, you wanna kick us off? Sommelier wine clubs, right? And yeah. as a sommelier who has a wine club. I know. <laughs> That's why I'm really excited. I figured more promotion. I figured uh I can't be too mean. <laughs> we sure you can be as you can be as mean as you want. No one can see me no one can see me cry. This is an audio medium. No, but I mean it, it does it does seem to be a very not current trend, but a trend that has grown mm-hmm. uh over the past few years, which is Psalm starting wine clubs. And mm-hmm. um I've often wondered if that is because I mean, I know we've talked about this, you and I, you know, uh pre Joanna, so PJ <laughs> in, in which, you know, we we've said like at some point when you get to your level in your sommelier career, like where do you go, right? And a lot of mm-hmm. Psalms have opened uh, wine shops. Some Psalms obviously then go on to become restaurateurs like Bobby Stuckey, et cetera, but uh, a lot open wine shops and then some start wine clubs. Um, mm-hmm. And I've always been a little bit skeptical of whether or not like a sommelier curated wine club is a hook for most consumers. I'm curious what Joanna thinks because, again, mm-hmm. Zach, you have one. So, yes. and I'm not saying, again, I want to be clear. I'm not saying I think that they're not interesting. I just, I've always wondered how many like American consumers understand and know Psalms. Yeah. I think that there's, there are different levels of this, right? Like, there are the more basic wine clubs that aren't curated by Psalms and that I think people who are, who drink wine, are attracted to. It seems like it's a lower lower barrier for entry there. And then I think there are people like consumers who are interested in wine who care what pros are drinking and want that kind of curation and will spend the money for it. So I think I think there are just different different segments of the wine drinking population and a certain part of it cares about Psalms curating. <laughs> the wine that they're drinking at home <laughs> or just cares about Psalms period. Fair, right. fair First of all. Yes. Yeah. Like, I guess my whole thing is if you have consistency, if you're able to pick wines that I ultimately wind up liking, I kind of don't <laughs> care if you were a Psalm. Like sure. I just happen to know that like Zach knows good wine. Right. And if mm-hmm. I joined Zach's club, I probably would enjoy the wines he picked. And then I would just, I don't know if like it, you also being a psalm will be a, a whole, like if that would be a reason I'd sign up, I'd probably sign up uh, because you're yeah. you're a co-host of the Vampire Podcast. <laughs> but uh, that's right. But uh, that's right off. Uh, isn't there an assumption that the quality will be better? Is that wrong? I like, think that there is an assumption that the, the, the psalm must have access. I mean, access. I'm curious, Zach, like, do you think is that that you have access to bottles that other people wouldn't have? Is that true? I I think it's basically two two very similar thoughts, or at least this is how I've always understood it, and it's and it's basically what you just said, Adam, which is the the assumption is that the sommelier maybe has a broader experience and 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 has tasted a lot of wines. I mean, I think that is the general perception that that Psalms have tried many many wines that are in the market, and so they have a sort of finger on the pulse. Now that mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily set them apart from. Um, you know, a good wine shop or something like that. But it is it is a thing that is, I think, broadly true if people are doing their job well. 
And it is that thing of access, right? That that when you're playing with, you know, sort of the the higher end, the well-known sommeliers like the Ian Cobble, who I interviewed later on in the podcast, you know, who's a master sommelier who was in the Somme films, who who's very well known. There's an assumption, unclear if it's true or not. I'm not saying one way or the other, but the assumption that I'm sure many of his subscribers, you know, believe is that he gets access to wine that some other wine club wouldn't get. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't know whether that's true. Um, I don't know whether that's a, whether the quote unquote access is more about just going out and finding stuff or whether it's people coming to them with offers that they wouldn't make to someone else. But there is the assumption that through these kinds of clubs, you are getting access to the kinds of wines, that, not just stylistically, but, but scarcity wise that mm-hmm. you would maybe only be able to find in a great restaurant. Um, and I think I want to add one other piece about this, which is one thing that has, I think, contributed to the rise of these kinds of wine clubs is not just the rise in prominence of sommeliers, that is part of it, of course, but some of it is also just a shifting of how people want to buy wine. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think we went through a long, and we're still in very much a phase where a lot of wine drinkers you know, people who consider themselves really dedicated wine drinkers buy a lot of their wine, especially online or, or, or you know, via delivery from wineries direct, right? They, they join a wine club, they go on a trip to, yeah. to Napa or Sonoma mm-hmm. or wherever, and they subscribe. But I think there's a lot of people, and whether they're younger or they've just been doing that for a while, they kind of burned out on that model, right? Because you kind of get the same wines year in and year out. And if you really love the winery, that's fantastic. But, you know, for a lot of people, they find after a couple of years, like, eh, you know, do I really need another case from this winery? Like, we're, 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 we're holding on to lots of it. I find that, you know, I, I, I have people I know who, who are like, oh, you know, let's, let's, uh, you know, tell me what you think of my cellar. And you look and it's like, you know, they have 500 bottles of wine, but they're from six wineries. And you're like, okay, mm-hmm. that's kind of cool. But like, maybe you'd like some diversity. Maybe you want to have uh, other things in your, in your cellar that you have access to that, that go with different kinds of foods or different moods mm-hmm. or different seasons. And, and that is what ostensibly a, a sommelier driven wine club you know, kind of purports to offer, which is like a, a broader range, a, a range that reflects what you might find in a, again, on the list of a great restaurant and not necessarily what you would find on a greatest hits of American wine tourism list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, I, look, yeah. I will say, I, I guess for me, what's interesting about the Sommelier Curie Wine Club is that, as you were saying, you know, there does seem to be more thought put into it. As opposed to like if I was to join, you know, Wink or something like that, right? right. It's for a very different I would hope person. So. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's and I think and I think that that's the draw is that you're showing people that there's someone behind the wine club. Now, what I don't fully understand is like when a wine club, like, so you're doing this on your own, right? You, like your wine club, Zach. You guys are. Like, are you are you being clear with who the retailer is, or are you just like? The no, wine, we have a retail license, so right? We yeah. So those I understand. What, what's always confusing to me is like when a wine shop starts a wine club with like another prominent person. So, for example, like there's a wine store here in New York um, that has now just started a wine club with Victoria James and the Somme team uh-huh. at yeah. Coat, and that to me is. Interesting. I'm like, but the wine shop is also pretty famous and not famous, but well known and has its own wine club. So I'm wondering what the end game is there for them to do this. Like, why are they outsourcing when I think what the majority of people are just looking for is someone who is, uh, you know, well known and they like 
trust. So I, I, I do, I don't know. So I wonder if like, this was just the, the shot being like, well, this could be a secondary club. Maybe they'll bring in new people for us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I, I do think that overall the, the, the appeal is just that you know it's a real person and you hope that that real person is sourcing better wines than you would get at you know a a larger club. I think it's also interesting for the people who aren't like in places where you can't get wines like that, right? Then it's really, really appealing. Like you don't have access to restaurants like that or or wine shops where you can get really yeah. great wines. Yeah. So you can you can participate in these clubs and then that's really... Well, and it's definitely the case that for a lot of people in parts of the country where access to wine is less right. uh, is less sort of robust or just you really have to work hard to find a shop that might carry these things or even some of the wines you want. You know, this is a thing we've we've harped on before, like the same wines are not available in all 50 states. Um, there are many wines that are only available in a few states. And so, you know, many of these clubs are are understandably based in like California or New York, states where there are you know, where, where almost every wine in the U.S. Is, or that's imported into the U.S. is going to be available, mm-hmm. uh, at least in some quantity. And so it really is like, uh, for some people, it's like their only way to get at, they're, they're excited about wine. They're interested in these wines. They're interested in wines that, that sommeliers are excited in. And their point of access is these clubs. And that may not be true for me in Seattle. And that may not be true for you guys in New York. But it is true for a lot mm-hmm. of people. Um, and there's also this other element of it, which is, I think, like, Adam, you know, you or I might be very comfortable walking into a wine shop and saying, here's what I'm looking for. Maybe I have a specific kind of wine or a style that I'm interested in. I want to have that conversation with you, with the, with shop, with the owner or, or the person working there. And I, and I want that experience, right, of that kind of like conversation about it. There are a lot of people who love wine, who want to try a lot of different wines, and that interaction either intimidates them or they don't know where to go have it. And the idea of getting a sort of cross section of the of the wine world, being able to pick and choose when and where they're interested in offers, to to kind of have the it come to them with more content and more, yeah, again, sort of thought behind it, but not having to do the like in person interaction, mm-hmm. I think is a big selling point. Like these are great for wine loving introverts, which is not <laughs> any of us, but they do exist. I promise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Zach, you wanna uh, you wanna set up your conversation. Yeah, so uh, we'll we'll get to it on the other side of the break, but uh, chatted with Ian Cobble, who's the founder of Som Select, about kind of everything involving the 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 founding of the company, where it's at now, and then we talked, of course, about Som because it's a movie that was rather important in his life. Let's do it. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Ian Cobble, who's a master sommelier and the founder of Som Select. Ian, thanks so much for your time. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. We're looking forward to this chat. So let's start out kind of with uh, with your beginnings in wine. When when did you first kind of, I don't know, get into wine and realize maybe kind of along the way that this was going to be your career? Well, you know, I went to Sonoma State. Both my sisters went there and I went and visited. Okay. And I basically remember going to a farmer's market and trying a tomato that completely changed my view of how good a tomato could be. Ah. And it opened my mind up to flavor and taste and how much pleasure I got from this trip up here. And I remember going out to lunch and having, you know, Frog's Leap Sauvignon Blanc with Humboldt Mm -hmm. Clock goat cheese and a beautiful heirloom tomato with local olive oil. And I remembered like the amount of pleasure that I derived from that (laughs) that lunch um, was much different than the, you know, growing up 
on tacos in Orange County, you know, Jack in the Box after a surf session. Um, and so I just really opened my mind into the potential of flavor and the enjoyment of life through your taste buds. Okay. And, I, and I started just, you know, tasting more things and really not just getting into wine, but getting into food, getting into cooking. And then I ended up, uh, you know, getting accepted to Sonoma State uh, shortly thereafter. And I got on the tennis team. And so I, you know, drummed up quite an appetite that when I would get off the tennis team uh, courts or wherever we were traveling, I would watch Food Network, watch okay. about play, started, you know, just acquiring knowledge about food. And then I found uh, Andrea Robinson, uh, Simply Wine with Andrea Immer Robinson, um, excuse me, Ab Andrea Robinson is her current name. And, you know, sh it basically just opened up my mind to the whole, you know, world of, of beverage and the farming and the winemaking and the process food and wine pairings just inspired me to learn more. And then <clears throat> I ended up changing my major from pre-med. I wanted to be a doctor to business and Spanish. So I studied Spanish my whole life. And so okay. I was focusing on, you know, wine business and Spanish, learned about the wine business program at Sonoma State, ended up going to Chile um, for a month for elective credits for Spanish and business, kind of learning about the international wine trade. And I just, just I got bit by the wine bug bad. Cool. And I got back and I, uh, I accepted a job for $2 an hour working in, in Doro in the Doro Valley, Portugal. And I basically moved there. I had a, some money saved from teaching tennis. And then I worked harvest and ended up traveling through North Africa, India, and Europe for about the next year and a half and came home broke, borrowed $150 from my dad for to buy a suit, and then interviewed at the Wine Merchant of Beverly Hills and okay. shortly learned about what a sommelier was, what they did, and started drinking the great wines of the world and learning about them. And uh, finally learned about what a master sommelier was, and I followed that path. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Uh, <laughs> listeners may be familiar with some elements of that and we'll get, we'll get to that, but I, but I want to talk to you about, about Psalm Select and, and kind of two pieces of it. So let's start with this kind of, what is it today? How, how, how would you kind of describe the business and, and how it functions? And I want to talk a little bit about kind of when you founded it. So it's a, basically it's an e-commerce wine company. Um, we, the, the core of the company is a daily wine offer. It's free to sign up. If you visit psalmselect.com, you put your email in and you get basically two emails a day, one in the morning, which is more, say, a 20 to $40 bottle of wine, maybe a daily drinker, something that might be like a Cru Beaujolais or a great 10-year-old Grand Reserve Rioja for $38 that we think is special. And the afternoon is more of a collectible, okay. say, $250 bottle of uh, Grand Cru Burgundy, Chablis, or whatever it might be, some old you know, Bordeaux from the 60s that we got a special price on. So that's one fraction of the company. We have a number of clubs. We have the Blind Six Tasting Kit. That's a monthly blind tasting mm -hmm. kit to teach people how to blind taste. Um, like a master sommelier, uh, basically breaking down the wines in terms of fruits and flowers, et cetera. And just, you know, the, t the tricks of the trade on how do you break down uh, one wine versus the other based on structure and, and the different attributes of the wine. We have an Explore Floor Club, which is $99 for four bottles every month. That's our fastest growing part of the company. Uh, because it's a very accessible price point. Sure. Uh, we have a Psalm 6. We have the Psalm 6 Red. So we have a number of clubs. On top of it, we launched a store last year when COVID hit um, with about 300 selections. And then uh, to, to the feather in the cap is our concierge department. So we you know deal with the finest and rarest wines of the world. We have a team of people that are specialists in helping you fill your cellars with the best wines in the world, whether that might be a $75 bottle uh, of Brunello. We'll find the best price to quality possible come and help you fill your cellar with it or ship it to your front door, whatever you need, we can make it happen. 
and the private client services division is is another of our fastest growing divisions because you know people have money they want to spend it on wine because they they get a lot of pleasure from it and uh and people love food and wine and i think that's one thing that i think uh we'll get into it but the psalm documentary has definitely stimulated people's interest in learning more about what what is behind the label like what happened in the vineyard that created this flavor to be so impactful for your emotion and your 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 palate because you know we both know that the great bottles of wine really change your pleasure of that moment in life, which is why we, sure. all, we all do it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk though a little bit about when you kind of founded Psalm Select in, in, in the 2014 and, and what your vision was at the time, because to me, one of the things that's always been interesting about it from, from afar to some extent is that, you know, you're not the first, obviously, online wine retailer. You're not the first wine club. But one thing that I've always found interesting about what you've done is that that it seemed very intentional, both in you know, literally the name, but also just in kind of the conception of the um, of the business that it would provide or aim to provide something like the kind of service you would expect from a sommelier in a great restaurant, but for people who were buying wine for home, right? Or at least not, yeah. you know, you weren't you weren't having to go somewhere. Uh, to to a restaurant or maybe even a great wine shop, you know, you could have that kind of experience, you know, sitting on your ass somewhere. You know um, what? That's a yeah. great point. And, you know, it was 2000, you know, 13 when we came up with the idea. I was working with Krug Champagne, um, which is amazing. And I love that job so much. Um, but one of my good college friends who had just graduated with his master's in wine business, he said, Ian, um, I think I have a great idea. Let's take, you know, your knowledge as a master sommelier and apply it to the daily offer wine business. And I think we both know, you know, a lot of the companies that are selling hundred dollar bottles in Napa cab, 80% off, but they're largely the leftover wines mm-hmm. of the market that are being heavily discounted at half of normal price. And a lot of them are tired and a lot of them you're selling basically, you know, the, the buffet items that are third day used. I'm just yeah. kidding by that. But, you know, we try to flip <laughs> that daily offer on its head and saying, instead of selling the leftovers of the market, the distressed inventory, why don't we come with this table side chat with a great sommelier at a restaurant? Like if you go to a great restaurant in New York City, like Danielle or 11 Madison Park, um, you have this engagement with the sommelier and they actually change your whole perception of that glass of wine, the way it tastes why it pairs with certain things. And, you know, typically you have to spend, you know, double to triple retail uh, for that information. So we were like, why don't we give that table side chat and bring the sommelier experience home to a point where you can actually have access to this sommelier experience from your home, you know, on your couch, like you were saying, and you don't necessarily need to go into a a three-star Michelin restaurant to engage with that sort of knowledge base. So the thought was very simple. We started with one offer per day, uh, with basically talking about the things that I would teach a table that came in uh, to a restaurant that I was working mm-hmm. at. So we would talk about why we love the wine, the history, a little bit about it, the soil, the farming, you know, the tasting notes, the fruits, the non-fruits, how much oak, the tasting um, ability, like how to, you know, properly enjoy the wine with the particular food and wine courses. Of course, Cabernet and oysters might not be a great pairing. But, you know, <laughs> I've served that one a few times. You know, and some people like it, and that's fine. And if you enjoy it, you should do it, no matter what I say. Do what makes you happy. <laughs> what I always say, but you know, typically Cabernet and ribeye with like sautéed chanterelles might be a better you know fit for a, a yeah. big Napa Cabernet. Um, but with that said, the the business started with the premise of kind of bringing that soma experience to your home, to your computer, talking about glassware, service temperature, decanting instructions, 
you know, obviously every offer, if you're receiving our daily email, uh, comes with a specific pairing with the recipe attached to the offer. So if it's a bottle of Beaujolais, we might include uh, Zuni chicken from San Francisco, which is a three-day dry brine. I was going to say, not exactly an easy recipe to, uh, to, you know, to complete. Yes, but you know, it, it's, it's easy if you have time, but yeah. most people do, you know, you cover kosher sure. salt on chicken and you put it on a plate for three days and then you cook it. It's, you know, it is for the geeks out there like me and you, it's, uh, that's what defines life is those pleasurable yeah. moments. You have to put time into the ingredients and, you know, the bottles of wine you're sourcing to really, for me to get the best out of life. And you don't have to spend a lot of money on wine or food to get great wine and food. You just have to buy smart from good growers. Um, with that said, once we did the daily offer, we evolved into quickly, you know, adding numerous wine clubs and, um, you know, everything kind of evolved from there. And it's now, you know, seven years later, it's been quite an adventure. Yeah, I bet. And, and I'm wondering too, you know, when it comes to some of the, the mechanics of the, of the club or of the offers and, and all the different pieces, you know, I've, we've talked on this podcast to a couple of other people who operate online clubs. And one of the challenges that they sometimes face is sort of, you know, um, quantities and, and availability. And, and there might be times when there's a great wine that you really want to offer and there's just not enough of it for you to maybe put that out there or right. if you do put it out there, it's got limited quantity. So kind of how do you handle the, the reality that obviously there's a pool of wines that are very, very available that, you know, you may not want to dip your toe in very often. Right. And with a lot of what you're talking about, that seems, you know, small production or at least, you know, not huge quantities of, wine imported into into the US or whatever like how do you kind of balance that you know it's tough it really comes down to obviously the availability and the price we can offer it for um, to send an email to our, our our list which is many thousands of people we want to make sure that there's enough that aren't going to sell out in 10 seconds right so sure. if i get if i get six bottles of you know Jacques Carrion Bienvenue Batard Montrachet you know, that might make more sense for my concierge department or my pr private client services division to send an email to 10 of our top clients and give them each a bottle, um, whoever wants it. Um, but, you know, for example, we just direct imported a bunch of Coulis de Tail or Coulis de Toy, depend, depends on how you pronounce the name. Um, here, here are different pronunciations, but we got a bunch of 1989. I got 500 bottles of it wow. and it's going to be $75 retail for an 89 wow. from a sick old vine single vineyard. And those are the types of wines that I think define what Somme Select does. We spend a lot of time in Europe finding these things that for some reason are still in existence from very good vintages. And we taste the wine. And if it blows our minds, you know, to get an 89 Cab Franc from the Loire that's showing like literally perfect right now mm -hmm. um, that's an offer that's coming up in i think three or four weeks so you know those that are paying attention to the daily offers will be able to <laughs> buy a few bottles but you know if not it's not something that we're really working that hard to sell because these things will disappear within a few hours sure and um a lot of the people enjoy seeing you know the offers that we sell and there's a lot of sommeliers and wine buyers around the world that they don't buy wine from us and they can't because they're not in America, but they just are paying attention to what's going on in the market and the prices and all of that stuff. Um, so it's definitely a challenge to find great wines in enough quantity that we can actually, that it makes business sense. Um, if yeah. not, we'll put it in the store. If we say we get 12 bottles of a 1985 Rioja, that 12 bottles will either be sold by our private client team or go into the store and be quickly found by those people. Um, looking around, but the the challenge is 
not just sourcing wine, but the logistics, obviously, of shipping wines. Sure. The logistics of getting wine safely to people in the summertime is definitely a big challenge for us. But we have a cold chain shipping solutions. And it's just it's a perishable product. That's probably yeah. the most challenging part of our business is, you know, the timing of when to ship a case of wine to middle America. We don't know what's going to go on in the next five to six days while the wine is in a cold refrigeration container. And then it shows you up to a UPS hub to get shipped out and it might be 98 degrees. And it was on the, you know, it's a tough p- position to be in. Yeah. But the good thing is 99.9% of our packages get to um, people's homes safely and in good shape. And, you know, we're always taking care of people if they have wines that that uh, are not showing perfectly for whatever heat exposure or whatever it might be or yeah. model. our customer service is second to none. Very cool. I have one more kind of uh, question about the business, and then I want to talk a little bit about the Psalm films. So I want to ask you also, you know, in this vein of, of kind of, it, it, you know, it sounds like obviously, you know, you're, you're, you're presumably you and your team tasting lots of wine, you're getting, you know, things offered to you from, from, you know, kind of all quarters at this point in the business, you know, seven on your seven odd years on in, is it pretty instinctive to you? Like you taste something you're like, I know this is going to work for our, our audience. Does your audience have a, a, a sort of palette in that regard? Or is it more like, you know, you want to give them a little bit of everything. And so sometimes you're going to pick wines that maybe aren't your personal favorites. Like, you know, I don't know if you have, I'm sure they're like anyone, you have styles and, and varieties yeah. and things like that, that you like more than others. Right. You know, is that, I guess that's what I'm kind of asking is, is, is do the wines reflect you and the team's personal choices? Or is it more like, Hey, I might not, I'm not going to, I'm not saying this is your feeling, but let's say you were someone who doesn't love, uh, you know, uh, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, say, right? But you you recognize that lots of people do. So, hey, I've picked what I think is a great New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc for the category. Don't ask me how I feel about it personally. Yeah, yeah. You know what? Um, we, we, I think every appellation in the world makes great wines for different reasons. And there's certain styles that might be, say, low acid, uh, highly oaked Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon sure. might have got a hundred points, right? We don't sell wine with points. Um, but I know certain people really love that style. Sure. We will offer these because we know that people love that big, rich, dense, high scoring um, style of Cabernet, but we make sure to accurately de- de- describe it. I personally like more wines with more freshness, say Maya Camus or Frog's Leap Cabernet or Corison, but there's an other bigger producers that you know, we talk about it. This is a behemoth. This is a, a rich, dense wine that um, is going to appeal for those of you who like this style. So we try to really clearly and concisely, uh, you know, bring forward what you are to expect um, because everyone has different taste buds. It's like it's like music. If you're a music store, you shouldn't not sell classical music because you don't like it and you shouldn't sell rap because you don't like it. But you should ideally have something for everyone. So we really sure. try to touch all bases. But, you know, I'll be honest, like New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc and California Sauvignon Blanc are the two worst categories in terms of sales in the mm-hmm. history of the company. We'll do a Sancerre offer Sauvignon Blanc and we'll sell X. And if we do New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, even if I say it tastes like the best Sancerre, we will sell 10% of the amount. Huh. Because the, the New World um, appellations aren't as sought after for a lot of our customer base. People love a lot of Oregon Pinot, a lot of, you know, Napa and Central Coast, Newt, Santa Cruz, Santa Barbara, et cetera, even Mexico. Um, but it's a challenge um, to get people to buy the things that are really available at a low price in their local Costco. Sure. You know, you can get Kim Crawford Sauvignon Blanc at Costco for $10. 
and it's and it's solid. You know, it's not yeah. the greatest, but it's definitely not bad. Um, so if I offer a twenty four dollar New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc that I say is great, people would rather just wait for the twenty nine dollar Sancerre. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I do love New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc for the record. I think New Zealand <laughs> Pinot Noirs, the Syrahs from Gimblet Gravels, Central Otago Pinots, you know, Moonlight Race, all these incredible wines. And we do offer them, and New Zealand Pinot does well from the right genres made by the right people, often when uh, it tastes like Burgundy. And people, yeah. as we both know, people want wines that taste like Burgundy because, you know, Burgundy, it's just like saying a, dry, a car drives like a Ferrari, right? It's, you know, there's, there's a reason why we love Burgundy. It's because it's one of the greatest expressions of Pinot Noir. And if you're emulating the greatness of Burgundy from Santa Cruz Mountains or Oregon or Canada, Okanagan Valley, for example, Foxtrot's a great example. Yeah. You know, Okanagan Valley, uh, you know, I think it's Naramata Bench on the southeast side of, uh, of uh, Okanagan Lake. And the wine is brilliant and tastes like great Burgundy. And it's 60, you know, whatever, $55 a bottle. And we sell tons of it because people taste it. And it really is such a unique experience. Yeah. Drinking Canadian Pinot that tastes like Baby Shambo Musini, for example. Yeah, you're, uh, you're speaking my language. I love I love the uh, Okanagan Valley. And I'm glad that the word is getting out. <laughs> so cool. Yeah, and, you know, especially as, as places warm up uh, yeah. for, for certain reasons. Um, you know, the more northern latitude you get, the more freshness we're finding, you know, and for sure, they're doing they're doing testing in Burgundy with Syrah now because it's getting so warm over the next 10 to 20 years that they're not sure how the Pinot Noir is going to exist. You know, people like Moet Chandon are actually buying land in Sweden over the last 15 years to anticipate Champagne being too warm. So, you know, Okanagan Valley is primed and ready, along with different areas of Ontario, et cetera. They're making exceptional wine the particular chardonnays i've tasted out of canada can be really incredible very cool so let's talk about the psalm films a little bit and i want to ask first you know was there a moment after the movie came out or maybe before it came out where you were like shit this is going to be a big deal for me yeah you know first and foremost i didn't realize i was going to be a you know going through a lot of stress um at the time and uh, B, I didn't realize I was going to be edited down to a, such a serious character because we filmed <laughs> for three years and there didn't necessarily uh, show my, you know, the smiling times. But with that said, I was very serious and I was very stressed out about the test. And they captured uh, a part of me that I never saw in myself when the cameras went on. But it's, you know, it's, it's very strange to watch yourself fr- in a movie theater uh, of a condensed version of some of the most stressful years of your life. Yeah. It's not something that many people get to experience. And, uh, it, it was slightly uncomfortable just watching the stress that I went through and reliving a lot of stressful periods in our life. Most people don't get to relive them, um, on film unless, you know, somebody filmed them, you know, uh, in an uncomfortable situation. But with that said, I think it was a g- great thing for my career. And I did know, I didn't really realize how big of a deal it was going to be um, until maybe three or four months after. And, okay, you know, and my, you know, Twitter followers started growing by a hundred by the day. And, you know, just people, you know, my friend requests on Facebook were over 5,000 within, you know, within literally a few weeks of the, of the movie hitting Netflix. Um, but it's been quite an adventure and I feel definitely fortunate to be involved. And, um, the greatest part is, you know, it helped elevate what a sommelier does. And so there's so many people that, work so hard to to gain wine knowledge so that way we can share it with people and enhance their life through beverage and through wine experience that um, I think that's one thing I'm really happy what the what the 
movie did is, you know, people sit down in a nice restaurant and they'll ask for the sommelier and really want them to come to the table before people, A, maybe didn't even know what the job was and B, they were intimidated and thought this person was just trying to make them spend a lot of money on wine, which might be the truth in certain situations. But I think now that more and more, you know, uh, kindred spirit type people are getting gravitating towards the sommelier world, you get a lot of amazing people um, just putting 100% of their effort into a learning about the great wines of the world and B learning about the art of a sommelier and applying their, their, their social skills and, um, and, and things they've learned about wine to hopefully engage with a given table and help take them on a great adventure of food and wine. Um, that's the goal. So I think that's one thing that a lot of people now know what a sommelier does and they're looking to engage with them to help, you know, increase the pleasure they derive from a given dining experience. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it definitely, as someone who was, who was working in the restaurant industry, when that movie came out, there was a big shift in people. When I told people what I did before and after when they, I said sommelier and they said, what? And now they said, oh, like the movie. You're, 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 you're not from Somalia. What are you talking about? Yeah, exactly. And it was like I, the, oh, like the movie. And I would have to be like, well, it's, you know, the movie captured a it's small part of what I do. Uh, not no, a lot. I, of- I agree with you. I mean, they don't, they didn't really capture the service and the reality. Sure. They captured behind the scenes studying and, you know, the kind of camaraderie of study groups and things like that. Mm-hmm. But the reality of our day-to-day life of showing up or until I was 32 anyways, I've worked in restaurants 12 hours a day. Yeah. And, uh, and the reality of, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into it before your first guest sits at six and the last guest sits at 10, yeah. you know, 50% of the work is before and after. And, there's a lot that goes into that role. And, um, and it's, and it's great that people are, I think, developing more respect um, for those people, just like they had for chefs. And yeah. uh, if people do love wine, you are going to want to engage with the sommelier because it's the odds are they've tasted, you know, 99% of the wines on the list and they know how to best spend your money and make a good bet. That's going to bring you pleasure based on your taste buds. Yeah, no, I, the, the movie definitely didn't capture some of the job, like, you know, inventory say, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, it's, it's, so, uh, they really had to cut it down. I mean, or else it oh, yeah. three and a half hour boring. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no one should watch inventory. Yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah. horrible. One <laughs> um, one last question for Ian kind of in this vein. So, so one of the things that you mentioned there a moment ago, and, and I think is really interesting is the way in which, you know, not just the some films have, but, but them and other things have brought, you know, the, the, both the sommelier position and individual sommeliers into more prominence, you know, analogous to chefs, uh, as you mentioned. And I'm wondering, you know, has that been a good thing for, for sommeliers to be more prominent or, or, or is it maybe more of a mixed bag? I think it's, I think it's great for sommeliers. I think, I think uh, people who work hard want to be noticed and they want their skills to be utilized and enjoyed. And that's why people spend so much time learning about these wines is so they can share their knowledge and their experience without, you know, boring the hell out of people with a, <laughs> a five minute dialogue on, you know, the subdistricts of Napa Valley and the difference of terroir. But there's ways of, of, of really kind of coming into the dining experience and, and having that really positive impact on people's experience and them knowing, hey, okay, you're a sommelier at a restaurant. You've probably spent a lot of time really curating an incredible selection of, of wines and of course, we know that there's a hundred different types of sommeliers. Some people, it's just a job. Some people take it very seriously and study every day, and um, and that's the reality of the situation. Just like a chef, you know, some chefs uh, work in a certain restaurant and it's a job, and some, you know, go to the farmers market and they pick every single ingredient that's going to go on their menu. It mm-hmm. just it's just the way it goes. There's different types of people with every trade, but 
most, the vast majority of sommeliers I know really take it seriously. And I think that the fact is a lot of people now, I think, respect the work that goes into it. Just like, you know, Food Network kind of brought a lot of respect to, you know, uh, chefs, you know, putting their heart and soul into a particular dish. Absolutely. Well, Ian, uh, if people are interested in Psalm Select, how do they find it? SomSelect.com, uh, S-O-M-M-S-E-L-E-C-T.com. You can follow us at at SomSelect. You can follow me on Instagram at, I, at Ian Cobble. And uh, we are around. You can basically stay in touch. You just go to the website and you put sign up for free. You put your email in. You're off to the races. It's a great way for people starting to learn about the world of wine. Excellent. Well, Ian, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, best of luck going forward. Thank you, sir. Cheers. Cheers to be here. Well, that was fun. So let's drink something that Assam will never recommend. Uh, <laughs> and that is, so we're gonna we're gonna start a new uh, segment on Fridays where the three of us uh, all drink a a alcoholic beverage live uh, and talk about it. And I think you know Joanna suggested this, um, and it's just brilliant. Uh, we're gonna try cacti uh, for the first mm-hmm. time. Um, I've never had it before. Me neither. Me neither. It is. It is made by it's made by Anheuser Busch, um, but is it is affiliated with a very famous individual whose name I forget because I'm Travis Scott. Travis Scott. Travis Scott. Yeah, sorry, uh, Travis Scott. Um, I just blank. I'm really bad at names. Anyways, um, so yeah, so it's Travis Scott's product. It is an agave spiked seltzer. So on the can it says cacti is made from 100 premium blue agave from Mexico and natural flavors for refreshing and bold taste. Uh, but to be clear, it, it uses you know agave as the sugar for actual brewing uh, because it is a malt beverage. Right. Yeah. Contains 1% juice, gluten-free, 150 calories, which I'm actually pretty surprised about just because I know this was the thing I noticed when I, yeah, seltzer is supposed to be like low calorie. So that is interesting. Um, It actually gave me hope that it might taste good because like maybe there's a little more flavor. We should also know we're drinking the, yeah, 7% 7%. 7 ABV time to get, and this so, is the pineapple flavor. So, well, so, so, do we? What, what flavors do we have? Because I have, I have three. I have pineapple, I have strawberry, and I have lime. Well, we're drinking the pineapple because that's all I can find. <laughs> I have lime at, and pineapple. Okay, so we're station. gonna we're gonna drink the pineapple together, and then I think that you know we may do the cool kid thing, and Joanna, I'll drink the lime, and you can listen. Um, <laughs> oh, fun! But uh, so, really interestingly, uh, if you check out beer Twitter, this is a hot hot tip that I was given prior to the recording from uh, you know Vine Pair's very own Tim McCurdy. Beer Twitter believes that the pineapple flavor is the most consistent flavor in all hard seltzers. Hmm. Uh, Tim strongly disagrees. Uh, He finds pineapple to be the most sort of polarizing in terms of like, it's, it's the flavor that he thinks a lot of brands don't execute well. Um, But you know, I guess some people think that pineapple's done really well. So let's, let's crack this open and try it. I was going to say no more talking, more drinking. Smells like pineapples. Smells I'll give like it pineapple. that. My goodness. This is like Bud Light flavored pineapple. Yeah, it does not taste particularly this is like pineapple. Terrible. <laughs> it's pretty bitter. Well, it's you know, it's made so it's made with malted rice, which makes total sense, um, being that it's Anheuser Busch. And it yeah, it does taste like Bud Light pineapple, which I didn't know was a thing that existed, but <laughs> I think Ugh. it's more definitely more flavored than like a white claw, though. Yeah. Hmm. I, I don't know if that's does white? I, this is my no, ignorance. Does no, white claw have a pineapple flavor? I don't know. I've never had it. Mm. I'm guessing they do. Yeah. Huh. This is interesting. I mean, like, it's not good. I don't hate it. Mm-hmm. Like, I, 
I ended up only being able to find a 25 ounce can, which I will definitely not be drinking all of, but I might have a few more sips. It's terrible. No, this is like literally all I can think of is like, it smells like the way a warm flat Bud Light smells that then has been flavored with Dole's pineapple juice. Yeah. But mostly not the Dole's pineapple juice, the throw up that happened oh after God. you drank Dole's Ooh. pineapple. That's what I'm getting from cacti pineapple. Wow. Yeah. Adam, you are describing my college years with eerie precision. <laughs> you guys drink a lot of pineapple juice when you drink. <laughs> no, but this is terrible. Let's. Uh, I did it in my early drinking years. It was sweet. This is gross. Yeah. Okay. Ugh. I'm moving on to. I'm moving on to lime. Okay. Yeah. You let me know if that's any better. But I have to. Ask, I have a question for the two of you, which is like mm. one of the things that's fascinating to me when we when we talked about doing this, and we'll we'll mm. do some more seltzers and other things, and obviously would love feedback from you listeners on what else we should drink. Mm. Uh, we we will we will reserve some uh, some editorial judgment on whether we're willing to subject ourselves to it. But, it would be uh, better with the lime. I don't like okay. it, but it's it's better. It just it's it tastes like it tastes like a bad margarita. Yes, it tastes like a bad margarita. But I would <laughs> so at least like if you handed it to me, I'd margarita? choke it down. But I don't mm-hmm. like it either. Oh, maybe it is like a lime margarita. I don't know. I I don't know the last time I've had one of those. It at least yeah, tastes the pineapple's gross. At least it's better. Okay, I'm gonna go triple bonus round, and I'm gonna drink <sighs> the strawberry that y'all don't have. But I also last want you guys to answer standing. this question for me, which is uh, which is like cacti was like super like it was there was a bunch of buzz around it when it came out i feel like it's already essentially like no one even Ooh, about God, it. that's disgusting <laughs> <laughs> that is the grossest thing i've ever had wait yeah it was like oh, this is fantastic huge out of the gate right I mean, and then like that very is quickly just, dropped off what the strawberry no no just, no, cacti just in general cacti oh yeah these are terrible like you I couldn't mean, even I, get I, this when it first launched. i think it's dropped off because it's so freaking it's bad good. Mm-hmm. it's just not good i mean yeah, this is well, and really you also bad. have this problem that you described, which is like it's it's both neither good taste wise, nor is it like low cal, right. low carb <laughs> in the way that other things are. So it's like who who is drinking this? Like what is who is the audience? And I guess maybe like I, I don't people who really believe in the power of agave. The cacti strawberry yeah. tastes like a strawberry starburst that's been soaked in seltzer water. Then you take the starburst out, so you just have the pure seltzer water. Then you add. Everclear, you <laughs> no. mix yeah. that through, and then at the very end, at the very end, you add just a little bit of rotten cheese, and that would be the strawberry. <laughs> and then you throw it up. <laughs> I would say that sounds actually better than the, your description of the pineapple. There's no vomit in these. Are terrible. There. These are terrible. Anyways, so um, Zach and Dren has been it's been a fun Friday. I hope we I hope we kicked off your Friday uh, well, all you listeners. If you have something you think we should try next, mm-hmm. uh, you know, shoot us an uh, email podcast at vinepair.com. We'll go out and grab it and uh, give it a go. And uh, Zach and Jen, I'll, I'll talk to you Monday. Have a good one. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tastings Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.